Hello and welcome back to the Energy Flux podcast. I'm your host, Seb Kennedy, founding editor of the Energy Flux newsletter, an independent outlet for critical analysis of the global transition to cleaner energy sources. If you enjoy this podcast and want to find out more about my work, head on over to www.energyflux.news, where you can browse the archive and sign up for free email updates. Now, it's my great pleasure to be joined this week by Peter Sainsbury, carbon market analyst and author of several titles on commodities and other topics. Peter publishes the Carbon Risk newsletter, which helps market participants understand the risks and opportunities available from carbon markets, how they intersect with commodity markets and the broader macroeconomic landscape. Uh, Peter, welcome to the show. Hi, Seb. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for inviting me on the podcast. My pleasure. Now, Peter, before we get started, uh, tell us a bit about carbon risk, what it is, why you started it, how you came to start it and uh, what it aims to achieve. Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, I think I perhaps I'll sort of start with just a little bit about my background and kind of how that set, it, set me up to start uh, carbon risk. Um, you know, my background is in um, economics and you know, primarily in uh, commodity markets. So I, uh, for about uh, just over uh, 10 years, I was the uh, chief economist at an environmental NGO called RAP, um, and that was to do with everything from uh, you know decarbonisation to recycling, um, you know creating a, a circular economy. Um, and then during that time I was there, I, I've I'd written and published a couple of books related to commodity markets. Um, so I was, you know, it's a subject I was very passionate about. Uh, and then uh, about uh, just about a year ago now, I, I, I resigned, you know, left my job. Uh, to concentrate and focus on on writing full time, uh, and, and and you know initially I kind of started with you know writing another book, and uh, you know writing a book can be incredibly rewarding at times, but it can also be like really painful as well. And uh, you know after after writing it uh, for a, a couple of months, uh, I was kind of getting really frustrated with it, but I could see a, a, a thread that's sort of wove its way through the whole book. And that was really something that was, I didn't think people were picking up on, but yet I felt there could be a potential audience for that, for people to uh, to listen to. And that was really that the carbon, carbon markets, you know, decarbonisation and how that's going to all evolve over the next, you know, 10, 20 years. Just... I didn't think was was being talked about enough in in the public domain and but yet it was i felt kind of been going to be increasingly instrumental across all these different markets different economies uh globally and um, so then i i took the really the decision to kind of park the the book and you know put it on ice for a while and try try my hand at, at writing um a, a newsletter because i felt you know this this information, my, my thoughts around the subject really need to be out there right now, not in six months or so when this book you know, could eventually be, be published. So, I, you know, back in November, I started uh, Carbon Risk uh, and that really started focusing on um, kind of environmental markets, but particularly carbon, carbon pricing. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's really designed to kind of in give investors a real, uh, you know, primarily investors, but also you know businesses, um, 
people that ha actually have to interact with these markets on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, a different insight, a different way of thinking about how these markets are, are evolving. Um, and so, you know, ever, ever since November, I've been sort of writing three or four articles a week to kind of, uh, you know, give investors that um, that insight as to what's what's driving the markets, uh, what, you know, where they could go from from now on, um, and that's kind of really sort of focusing on sort of the compliance markets, so like the EU ETS, um, you know, California uh, and elsewhere around the world, but also you know looking at the sort of voluntary carbon side, which you know is still quite a uh, kind of a nascent industry, but you know, it's got potential to be you know, grow significantly over the next, uh, you know, 10, 10 years or so. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's in really sort of a nutshell of what I've, what I've been trying to do. Um, so, uh, you know, so far, at least it's, you know, it's been very successful. I had a lot of good feedback and, uh, you know, continues to grow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I can imagine the book is sort of writing itself while you're achieving these, you know, deadlines for, for writing the posts. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly initially I had, you know, plenty of material, which, you know, I've continued to to borrow uh, from uh, in terms of some of some of the articles I've I've put out there. Um, so yeah, whether I actually ever finish the the book is is another question. But uh, you know, maybe maybe one day. <laughs> I, I know the feeling. I've I've kind of thought about writing a book myself, and then realised, well, I'm writing a book every sort of month, so mm. you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll yeah, just exactly. keep doing this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so the thread that you've yeah, you, you highlighted there about uh, carbon markets being in increasingly instrumental in determining things like asset valuations and utilization of um, yeah, existing infrastructure. Um, that's that's like one of the main reasons that I wanted to get you on to, was to talk about that. Uh, but also because I don't really, I'm I'm one of the the many guilty culprits who who don't pay as much attention to what's actually happening in carbon markets as I probably mm. should. Um, so uh, I, I thought you know maybe we could start by um, just describing what's what's going on in the well the, I guess the world's largest mandatory carbon market which is the still the EU ETS right um, what's the state of play there what have we seen in terms of um, like price movements recently with the commodity price rally um, what how, how is the carbon price mm. in Europe interacting with kind of the, the macro environment yeah that's right so I mean it you know, it's really the the past uh, you know twelve months or so, twelve uh, eighteen months has really been quite a you know it's been a significant change in in the market um, in, in in Europe but also elsewhere around the world as well, um, and that's partly been policy reform uh, or the legacy of policy reform measures introduced you know in the in the years prior to uh, to last year, but it's also been a kind of recognition that by uh, you know industry, government, investors, you name it, that carbon prices need to be you know, much higher than they were to incentivize uh, decarbonization to the extent you know, to which we'd, you know, we're trying to meet the targets that um, you know, political leaders have, have set in terms of trying to meet, uh, trying to meet net zero. Um, and so the way I think about carbon markets or carbon prices is that the price of carbon is almost like a, um, not always necessarily like a, a commodity, but it's almost like a, a currency. So it's a, you know, a currency of decarbonisation. So you really want a, a high price to, um, you know, really in, incentivise that that trust, uh, that confidence from investors and the whole supply chain that 
that government or that jurisdiction is fully behind you know driving uh, you know the decarbonisation across the economy you know, if that trust evaporates then the price will fall um, you know we've seen that in historical you know environmental markets um, you know in in, in America um, but in terms of where what's happened over the past year you know carbon prices in Europe have, have you know tripled from about 30 euros per ton back in early January last year um, you know they're getting up to 95 almost to about 100 euros per ton uh, towards the back end of back end of last year um, and you know as I kind of mentioned that's partly driven by that um, you know the reforms that were introduced uh, kind of back in 2017 2018 that would gradually tighten the supply of um, allowances on the market because uh, prior to that there was this um, you know, massive excess supply of, of allowances yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's gradually starting to come down there's still there's still an excess amount of allowances on the market but you know everyone involved in the industry has, has recognized that the market's tighter than it was um, but it's also you know that recognition that you know Europe is um, you know very ambitious it's got very you know stringent uh, legally uh, obliged targets that mean it's you know trying to cut emissions very very quickly uh, through to 2030 and then beyond so that you know in order to achieve that you know the 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 cap on emissions will come down very very sharply over the next decade um, so that means there's you know less allowances available to um, you know to emitters within the scheme um, and then you know that so there's that that kind of confidence driving the market and uh, then there was also things like, you know, high high energy prices. So we saw, you know, particularly natural gas, but also coal um, increase significantly you know, from around sort of middle of last year. Um, you know, as, as you know, gas inventories in Europe, um, you know, tightness across you know, the whole sort of global market helped help drive prices up. Yeah. Uh, and what you tend to get is, you know, as gas prices go up, um, you know, people would then look at, you know, um, you know, other alternative fuels as to whether you know they want to shift to to a different, different, uh, different fuel. Um, but then you've got to take account of the you know the carbon intensity of that uh, of that alternative. Um, and then I think the the third factor I think was the the influence of of investors, you know, financial markets. Um, you know, so we saw, you know, that there's a real kind of. Um, you know, there, there was a speculative element, I think, to the the market certainly towards the end of last year. You know, particularly around uh, the options market, which helped sort of drive some of the you know that final surge in prices um, going up through sort of November and December. Uh, and then, and then, really, kind of what we saw during just to sort of tie it back to where we are today. You know, we clearly in uh, sort of the early part of 2020, 20. 22 even um there was a, a concern from some of the policymakers in europe that uh you know prices were increasing at too soon and too fast uh, and that would you know impose you know significant significant costs on on uh, uh on europe you know and, and in the end on um us as you know energy consumers so there was an element of trying to introduce measures to then sort of tighten the or 
you know, basically enable the EU to tighten the market, um, tighten that uh, ability to increase prices, you know, at some point in the future. So that took some of the heat out of the market. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine that you know sparked you know a, a panic in in the market, mm. uh, much like you know we've seen across some other other markets as well, uh, where people were you know fearful that you know gas gas markets were going to uh, gas supply was going to be cut off from Russia, you know, and that would you know provoke you know massive demand destruction, which would then mean there would you know, be less demand for you know carbon allowances. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There was a, there was also a I think an offloading of um, allowances. You know, it was a you know, liquidity crisis, which meant you know, people were, were dumping some of their down allowances on the market, and that that drove prices down. Uh, and then, yeah, you know, I think uh, there was there's also this feeling that you know, clearly Europe is on a on a war footing. Uh, so the the the, the sense that uh, you know carbon the carbon price was going to be the sole driver or certainly one of the main drivers of decarbonisation going forward uh, you know that that isn't happening now you know the you know the European Commission are introducing you know making it much easier to grow you know renewable capacity uh, you know lots of other reforms which will hope hopefully over the next ten years you know accelerate that 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 transition. Uh, you know, kind of outside of the influence of of the carbon price, so I think we're in a we're in a much more sort of nuanced environment now than we were, you know, even a few months ago before the, the you know the Russian invasion. Right. Okay. Um, can you can you just explain that a little bit, like how how actually because it, it it does run a bit contrary to to, to your opening um, part of your opening statement about carbon risk and you know carbon markets becoming increasingly influential in the energy industry and, and determining mm. investments but at the same time you said that that we might see carbon price of carbon having a less or more nuanced role in in determining renewables growth can you can you kind of just talk about around that yeah. a little bit more? well that's right so i think there's there, there's there's lots there's lots of different components of decarbonization there's the the generation of electricity so that's the shift from or it has been a shift away from from coal to natural gas, uh, and then increasingly to to renewables. You know, that's one component of that shift, uh, and I think that's the the point I was making at the end there. That um, you know, Europe's trying to accelerate that that transition away from natural gas, so that we're not you know, as dependent on on Russian imports, uh, Russian gas imports. But then there's also the 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 second element, which is about the industrial decarbonisation. Um, you know, an industry is a you know a, a massive emitter of emissions uh, across Europe, um, and it, and it's here where you know I, I believe that you know, increasingly it's where the carbon price will you know be, be much more important going forward. Yeah, okay, and that, and that's about kind of incentivising you know things like hydrogen, uh, you know carbon capture and you know, storage uh, and you know and other technologies like that okay yeah okay um right and, and of course those industries are the ones that receive free allowances at the moment right yes that's right so uh i think it's like uh you know industry receives like something like 90 to 95 percent of their their allowances for free at the moment so you know even though the carbon price might be 80 or 90 
euros a ton, you know, they might only be paying, you know, a tenth of that. Uh, so at the moment, you know, whether the carbon price goes up 10, 20 euros a ton in the market, that's having a really kind of a negligible impact in terms of their, their incentives. Um, but what uh, Europe is looking to do is to gradually, uh, you know, increase that decarbonisation incentive over, over the next decade. Uh, and that's by, you know, gradually cutting that free allowances by about, you know, sort of 10% per, per year, um, you know, so that there's a clear path that uh, those industries can see that they're going to have to you know, invest in decarbonisation or they're going to have to find some way of paying for those those high uh, high carbon prices. Yeah, and and that really brings us on to the, the kind of main topic of the show, which is what carbon border taxes might mean for, for the energy transition. Mm. Um, and, uh, and of course, Europe is, well, the European Union will impose a uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism, or CBAM, as it's become mm. known, to force non-EU suppliers of uh, goods and services in some industries to pay the prevailing EU ETS price if they don't have a carbon market in their own domestic market, or haven't paid a carbon price in their own um, domestic market. Um, is that is that right? Is that the right description for it? Yeah, so, that's, so it's, all, it's all, all about um, sort of the relative carbon price. So if so if another country had a comparable carbon price to Europe, then you know, they wouldn't there wouldn't be a, um, you know a, a carbon border tax to pay. But if there was a you know a, um, a, say a much weaker carbon pricing mechanism in say uh, you know, Indonesia, for example, when that was only ten euros a ton, uh, whereas in Europe, it's uh, 80 euros a ton. Then that importer would have to pay that difference between the between the two between the two um, uh, uh, you know, carbon prices. Uh, so uh, you know, as you kind of mentioned, yeah, part of it is also the idea behind it is to um, you know make importers pay for carbon intensive materials coming into Europe. Uh, so that that is trying to you know help create a sort of level playing field for, you know, major industries based in Europe. Uh, and, you know, the flip side of it is also to try and stop or, you know, make it less likely that there be this kind of sort of carbon leakage. Uh, that's what it's known as, you know, where a steel plant or a fertiliser operation would decide that, you know, the environmental standards are much less in some other part of the world or you know, energy prices are much lower because you know we don't have to pay the price of carbon let's move our operations elsewhere so it's trying to you know level the playing field across those two uh those two angles um and then it's it's really about you know as as you get that sort of critical mass of uh industries that are having to pay you know, much higher allowances, but there's a level playing field with between Europe and the rest of the world. Uh, you know, that really then creates the incentive and gives investors the confidence that, you know, if we invest in decarbonisation for the, you know, the technologies that are required, there is a market therefore for that, uh, that, that, that technology. You know, if there wasn't uh, a CBAM 
you know, being introduced, then I think it'd be much harder for for investors and, and other businesses to really kind of invest to know that you know that there'll be confidence to have this market in place. Yeah, yeah, it, it does sound like a, a really effective way of exporting. Um, yeah, decarbonisation investments, exporting the carbon price, um, and and yeah, like really spurring the uptake of um, of carbon markets in jurisdictions mm. that might otherwise not not get around to doing them. But when they sudden, if they might be at risk of being frozen out of premium European markets for their products, then they'll realise well we have to institute carbon pricing here. Uh, and or decarbonize the products that we're exporting so they don't have to pay such a hefty tax when they get to the border of Europe. Yeah, that's right. And we, you know, we're starting to see countries you know, start to introduce, um, you know, carbon pricing. You know, I think Indonesia is trying to introduce one by 2026, uh, which, you know, aligns with the, the start of, or the scheduled start of the CBAM coming into force. Um, is Is that a result of, of CBAM, do you think they've looked at this and thought, well, we need to, to get on the same page as Europe? Um, I've, I've, I haven't seen explicitly mentioned or, you know, certainly the reading I've done, I haven't, haven't seen that, but I, I, I can't see any reason why they, you know, it hasn't been one of the prime incentives to, to incentivize it. Um, you know, you know, you're seeing other countries, other major importers like, you know, like the UK, America and Canada, starting to talk about you know the potential benefits of a, a carbon border adjustment as well so i think it's kind of reflecting the direction of travel across you know many sort of major developed markets and i think uh, for those uh, you know major sort of commodity exporters that are, you know looking to access those markets in the future uh, then they, they, they they're recognizing that we you know we need to start now really um and kind of introduce these these trading systems. Yeah. Okay. Um, th there is a, a kind of alternative argument that um, that 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 holds that the CBAM there's a kind of moral problem with with carbon border taxes. Mm -hmm. And I actually wrote a piece back in November on Energy Flux about this, and um, I I posted it on like Twitter and LinkedIn in a few places, and it got a lot of pushback. Um, but essentially, I was I was kind of playing devil's advocate, and I was arguing that well, the, the moral argument is that you know countries without the means to decarbonize their export industries will be levied with a tax that they can't realistically avoid. Um, so you know, developing economies that have export industries that are very carbon intensive, but they rely on access to premium markets, they won't they won't necessarily have the means to 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 be to be paying these carbon taxes um and so they'll just find that their their trade partners kind of turned their back on them mm. and they have to shut down domestic industries which is very negative for you know local jobs the prosperity of local communities and so there's that angle that you know CBAM needs to be introduced carefully I, I suppose the point of the article was to to kind of make this point that that you know you can it, you need like the carrot and the stick don't you so mm. so if I think if CBAM was to be accompanied by some sort of assistance to help trade partners become compliant, then it might be a bit more palatable than just sort of poking the stick at people. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think that's that that yeah you know, I I, can, I kind of agree with that point really that you know, it needs to be introduced uh, carefully and gradually, um, you know, enough to give a 
you know, clear sign that this is the direction of travel, but give economies enough time to you know, make any necessary changes, either you know, investing or you know, introduce a, a carbon price of some sort. Um, you know, which is why I think Europe is in that kind of difficult moment at the moment, whether they, I think they're talking about, yeah, you know, kind of a complete phase out of allowances, uh, free, all free allocations, and, you know, the full impact of the CBAM coming within just a few years of introduction or over a period of 10 years. So you've got a lot more, you know, you're giving those perhaps less developed economies more time to, you know, uh, to, to put things in place, you know, depending on it, you know, if it's, if it's over 10 years. And um, so I think, uh, you know, I think there's, there's a lot to be, um, you know, said in terms about the impact of, on those economies. Um, you know, cause while, uh, you know, Europe, especially, you know, we've already got quite a high carbon price and, you know, perhaps less carbon intensive than, than other parts of the world so you know any increase in the carbon price has a you know much more muted impact on you know both our you know economic growth and inflation whereas for you know an economy that's starting from zero or close to then you know that gradual or that you know, perhaps that sort of rapid increase in carbon prices is going to you know have a you know profound impact on you know economic growth and inflation and and as you say, it might, um, you know, it might provoke those you know, heavy industries from either you know, sort of shutting down completely or you know, having to move move elsewhere. So it could you know, could have a major impact on on jobs. But you know, as you, you mentioned about you know, some kind of uh, you know, carrots as well, you know, not just a stick. And the I know the European Commission is talking about uh, you know twenty five percent. I think it's about twenty five percent of the the tax that would have been raised by the CBAM, you know, being redirected uh, into, you know, redirected to uh, the, you know, the economies most affected in terms of sort of climate finance. So you're, you know, I think if it, I think it was totally a revenue raising measure, uh, you know, much like the EU carbon price at the moment, if, if it was just all about raising taxes, then, you know, there wouldn't be the groundswell of public support for it. Um, you know, in terms of you know, climate change, but if you you make it clear that you know a, a good proportion of it is redirected to help those economies develop, then I think you know that becomes a little bit more more palatable for all you know all concerned. Yeah, although twenty five percent still not it that does much. I, I mean, agree. At the beginning, it's going to yeah. be a lot, isn't it? Because it's not yeah. like everyone's going to be compliant to begin with. The, the biggest payments will be at the beginning because over time there'll be more decarbonisation so less to mm. pay in theory I suppose although the carbon price goes up so I don't know maybe the tax will stay the same over yeah the yeah I, I agree it 25% does sound does sound very small I think I think there's um, you know there's another thing to I guess to think about is that just as the EU carbon price is a you know is an incentive it, it also is a major source of, of tax revenue for you know, for, for Europe, for EU member states. Uh, and, wh and while a large proportion of that, and I, f I forget the exact figure, you know, gets redirected to, you know, climate innovation and, um, you know, redirected to, you know, uh, poorer parts of uh, the European economy, you know, it's also, you know, is a, a source of tax revenue. Uh, so one incentive for, 
you know, those other countries around the world that are looking to introduce a, uh, a carbon price, you know, either a carbon tax or, or any, uh, or a trading system is that, you know, the revenue raised from that could be used to, you know, either to fill, you know, tax revenue in their own country or, you know, redirected to environmental, um, you know, investment, you know, within their own, within their own borders. So I think perhaps they, they, you know, one sense it might be to think, well, we, we rather than getting, you know, having the EU capture all that, that additional tax, why don't we, you know, introduce a, a trading system in place now and let, let us capture all that, uh, that tax revenue. Right. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Why, why pay it in Europe? Yeah. 25% right. back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, there is, I think there is a, you know, an inbuilt incentive there to, you know, you know, get, get, get it in place as soon as possible. So, you know, that that country gets the benefit, not, uh, not Europe. Yeah. Okay. Um, Peter, what, what is, what's your view of the risk of carbon border mechanisms sprouting up in, you know, for, first world economies but then triggering rather than triggering this kind of dash to towards compliance or towards equalization within mm. developing economies like we've said the incentive to develop domestic carbon markets what's what, what's the risk of of there actually being a kind of backlash and there being sort of tit for tat trade type responses because yeah. tra trade relations are pretty touchy right now and i know that you know, a lot of focus is on russia and ukraine and this is kind of Western alliance against Russia, but but that that seems to be masking um, some very febrile relations between the U.S. and China, and they've just come out of a big trade war anyway. And it doesn't seem to take much to push Beijing and Washington towards um, towards very cool, rapidly cooling relations on on things like trade and tariffs. Mm -hmm. And this could quite easily become an area of conflict, couldn't it? Because obviously there's this massive structural reliance on China for exports of things that will help decarbonisation, but at the same time there's a carbon intensity for those products and yeah. you know, levying a tax on those and reshoring of industries is very contentious. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think first of all, you know, the, the European Union and you know, perhaps other countries as well, we're going to focus on the the materials that are most, uh, you know, highly carbon intensive, but also you're freely traded around the world. So things like, you know, aluminium, fertilizer, you know, cement. So they're kind of, you know, basic products in some in some respects that can be traded. So they might not necessarily be the, uh, you know, solar technologies or you know other renewable technologies that you know we might depend on. Uh, from, from China and other countries. So, but that I imagine that will be the eventual states eventually. So, you know, it, it will come to that. Um, I think, yeah, I, I think as you alluded to earlier on, there's, there's also going to be that sort of trade tension just in terms of how the carbon tax is introduced. You know, it, you could argue some of it's quite subjective in a way in terms of you know how intensive will those, those products be? Uh, I know there's going to be sort of two or three years of data monitoring before the actual uh, CBAM comes into force. Um, but both, you know, importers into the UK and, you know, other even exporters of materials out of Europe could be, uh, you know, could feel that their, their, their products are, you know, being unfairly taxed or, or subject to, 
unfair treatment elsewhere, elsewhere around the world. And that, that's, that, that's certainly a risk. Uh, I think there's a, um, a, a risk of kind of inflationary impacts you know, affecting trade. So, you know, you mentioned Russia. I think Russia's probably the, uh, you know, we'd have said up, up until recently, you know, Russia's the, the economy most likely to be affected by, by the carbon uh, uh, border adjustment mechanism. You know, purely because of the amount of uh, aluminium, iron, and steel fertilizer that it, uh, you know at least used to export to, into Europe. Uh, so you know the loss of fertilizer, you know that creates inflationary impacts across, um, you know, and in, in, into food markets. Uh, and, and then yeah, no, and finally, just you know, you, you made the point about the you know, about China, um, and of course there'll be, there'll be other countries as well that we. That we rely on for, um, you know, either materials or technologies that are instrumental in developing the technology and the the means to decarbonize. That we, you know, we might, um, you know, we might just be discouraging them from, uh, you know, exporting into into Europe. Uh, in which case, other countries where there perhaps isn't a carbon border tax we, you know will you know be much more attractive for, uh, end markets for those you know for china and other other economies so that you know to that extent we could be uh, you know hesitate to say sort of shooting ourselves in the foot but we you know we could be making it much more difficult for ourselves uh, in terms of trying to you know develop that technology right that's really interesting so you're you're describing a kind of bifurcation of, of i think there's a risk that yeah potentially of that of that happening yeah, yeah. I, not necessarily by design, but something that could be, you know, a potential outcome. Yeah, but if you look at the way that relations are evolving in response to what's happening in Ukraine, then there is a kind of bifurcation going on mm. with, you know, this kind of Western alliance, but it's it, it doesn't encompass even half of the global economy, and you still have, you know, most of South Asia, um, parts of Southeast Asia, South America, and China, of course, kind of taking a much more nuanced view of what's happening uh, towards Russia and, and um, you know, not engaging in the sort of self-sanctioning of Russian energy projects, uh, products that the, the, the Western companies and, and, and countries have. Mm. And then you kind of layer on top of this, this idea of, okay, and there's a kind of carbon border adjustment mechanism that you have to pay to, to, to sell into Europe. And it, it, it does, it does kind of, it does. It, it feeds into that narrative about the sort of the end of globalization, almost this this sense of a kind of retrenchment around national boundaries, national borders, mm. and and uh, bilateral alliances, and and a move away from this kind of globalized world of free trade. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think there's a, there's a real risk of that that happening that we might you know inadvertently, or well, perhaps yeah intentionally from some quarters maybe you know, move down that that uh, you know that path. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to look on the optimistic side that, you know, by introducing things like the carbon border tax, you know, as you say, that helps to globalise that, that carbon price and that provides a, you know, incentive, you know, a global incentive that then filters down across, you know, industries and you know, across Europe, but also, you know, as a kind of a multiplier effect across the rest of the world. Um, but yeah, the, as you 
you know, rightly alluded to, there is a risk that you know, we might set ourselves back uh, in some ways, you know, make it more difficult for ourselves. Yeah, well, um, not to be too um, <laughs> negative, I, I will actually just bring up something that I wrote last year. Um, this, of course, all predates the Russia's invasion or full, full invasion of Ukraine. But um, Russia is, or at the time I wrote this in November, was reportedly considering its own carbon tax and Turkey cited CBAM as a factor influencing its mm. decision to finally sign the Paris Climate Accord. And the US, which has been notoriously anti carbon pricing, carbon taxes, carbon markets is, you know, it's its first foray into a kind of bipartisan supporting position towards things like that was founded on the basis that we could have um, a kind of common instrument with Europe that, that applies, you know, a carbon border um, to things like aluminium and, and, and steel. So, so the fact that CBAM is having this effect in these markets that until now have been quite kind of anti-decarbonisation or been quite reticent to, to, to institute carbon markets, then, you know, maybe we're going to have the intended outcome of CBAM, certainly among some economies, they're going to kind of fall in line almost. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that, that would be a, a, a real positive. Um, but I think, you know, and I think it goes back to your point that there needs to be a carrot and you know, whether the, the figure is 25% or, you know, perhaps much higher, I think there needs to be a case, there, there is a case for, you know, investing a lot more of that, that the revenue that's raised by the CBAM to you know, help those, you know, perhaps those, those economies that can't, uh, you know, invest or don't have the resources uh, to reconfigure their economies to, you know, to help them, uh, help them change. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and just to kind of speak directly to the the question in the title of the show, like what what would it mean specifically for the energy transition, for the you know deployment of renewables, the decarbonisation of industry? Um, let's let's kind of take two theoretical um, outcomes where yeah, you know, CBAM is a kind of success, and everybody tries to comply, or there are kind of carbon markets spring up around the world to avoid having to pay the carbon border tax. And then the opposite, where you have the kind of carbon trade war and maybe even CBAM is repealed after a few years. You know, that could be like the worst case scenario because it's a complete failure. Mm. What would, how, how would that affect the energy transition, like a successful CBAM and a failure of a CBAM? Uh, well, I think a successful one would, uh, you know, it accelerates everything from... You know, you know, sort of new, you know, the use of hydrogen in, across the industry. So, you know, that uh, you could imagine the, uh, you know, as the cost of, of renewable energy came down, you know, the use of green hydrogen in, um, you know, across industries became, you know, more economical. And um, so the, you know, both the energy transition in terms of, you know, move towards renewables and kind of the industri industry side becomes more, you know, more aligned. Uh, so I think I think that's probably the you know the optimistic positive uh, kind of scenario that I, I can envisage over the next you know ten years, uh, and, and then I think I think for that you you know the carbon price you know needs to stay high to uh, you know to keep that incentive there, but you can imagine you know either it doesn't need to go too much higher or, or maybe it comes down you know much sooner than. Um, you know, the next 
several you know several years you know so it doesn't need to stay as high as it, as it perhaps it, it is at the moment um, i think on the, the the flip side on the you know the negative side you know the the the, the risk both in terms of um, you know if there is some kind of carbon trade war or you know some other event you know like you know the sort of russia in ukraine crisis or you know us and china or some kind of other measure that provokes a you know bifurcation of of global trade then you know that might then push off that you know the level investment and the you know the change that you need to need to make happen uh, you know much further into the decade uh you know and, that, and that's clearly going to slow down you know the, the energy transition but also industrial decarbonization as well and and the, the risk there in that scenario is that you need you know governments and um you know policymakers have to almost like stamp on the brakes in terms of you know their climate policies so they you know they, later in the decade you might be getting so much more um you know environmental concerns that yeah, they feel that you know carbon price has to be much, much higher to bring about the change that's um, that's required. Uh, and yeah, and then again, you, you know, then you risk you know provoking you know some sort of very bad sort of negative responses. You know, across in terms of both trade and you know the cost of living um, you know, impact on the economies. So you know that that could potentially be very negative. Yeah, yeah, and and that's already an issue. I mean, with high energy prices, which look set to remain structurally elevated for the next sort of four years at least, I'd say, um, then like that cost of living issue is extremely pertinent right now. And so there's already there 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 is this kind of undercurrent of well, you know, let's just you know, if the carbon price goes much. For, it goes back into triple digits and like stays there and goes incrementally higher then you, you that that kind of groundswell of opposition is is inevitably going to be there and like the kind of the red top press you know, here in the uk mm. where the red top press means like the the kind of um the tabloids they, mm. they they pounce on this sort of thing and they do have an ability to kind of whip up artificial or genuine um uh, opposition to things like um carbon pricing so it's it's very sensitive isn't it from a kind of consumer point of view too yeah, that's right, and I think which is why I think um, you know whether it's you know governments or other you know um, authorities, you know you need to. I think there needs to be much more about the you know much more communication about the yeah the inherent trade offs involved with the energy transition. You know, it's going to be costly. It's going to be, but there's going to be need to be investments which could ultimately. You know, reap a, a reward. Um, you know, not just in terms of the climate, but um, you know, from an economic perspective as well. So I think, you know, I, I'd I'd like to see everyone be you know a lot more transparent and open about what those those trade offs will be. Uh, I, you know, it's going to be hard to get people to change. Uh, you know, and and be that way, but uh, you know, that that's what I think needs to happen. Yeah, and I, I do wonder also if you know, bringing in a carbon border tax and then exposing consumers to the actual carbon cost of of their lifestyles. In fact, mm. it, it kind of might, might uh, the scales might fall from people's eyes a little bit over, you know, the, the scale of reliance on embedded 
carbon in products that we consume and, and just how much we've exported our carbon problem to the rest of the world. And that kind of brings back, it goes back to the, one of the points I was making in that article from November was, you know, it, you can you can spin emissions as a kind of, you know, non-EU problems. We're so clean here, but we just kind of exported our our emissions to um, to to parts of the world with lower environmental standards. And, mm. and we need to really kind of wake up and realise this is a global problem, and that everybody has played their part in in, in emissions being as, as as bad as they are now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, I think people are starting to recognise that. But people are starting to recognise that you know we've also done that for the you know, the essential commodities and technologies that we, we're going to rely on or need to rely on to, you know, to make this transition work. So it's, you know, I think people are starting to wake up to, you know, what's happened over the last 20, 30 years and, you know, thinking, well, you know, we, what would we, we just export, you know, we sold all that, uh, that knowledge and expertise to, you know, other parts of the world, um, you know, and, and that makes, you know, I think, you know, we're all going to have to, you know, re- you know, recognize the need to, you know, do a lot more at, at uh, in our own domestic, um, you know, domestic economies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, just a, a little reminder: if you're listening live, then um, Peter's available to uh, to answer any questions you might have. Is there somebody calling in there? Let me see. Is Joshua? Joshua, are you are you coming in? Uh, this is Josh. Yeah. Um, uh, so. Um, I'm uh, curious what your perspective is on biomass as an alternative to the petro uh, for energy um, and how quickly we could ramp that up. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, if you just, if you, do you mean in terms of, I assume you the question meant in terms of kind of, um, sort of road transportation Um but I guess you know. I guess we've seen uh, certainly Europe and uh, you know, I think America and you know, other countries you know, use sort of biodiesel or um, other kind of sort of you know, bioethanol in, in terms of the uh, into the mix in terms of gasoline. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical about the the environmental benefits of that. Um, you know, Depending on it, really kind of depends on what, what you know what the source of that uh, that bioethanol is, and you know, I think we've seen some of the sort of negative environmental impacts in terms of uh, you know, the impact on the, uh, kind of like the the palm oil industry in uh, kind of Indonesia and other places like that. Um, so, yeah, it, to short answer to your question is, I think it's I think it needs to be done very, very carefully. And I think uh, it can have, you know, negative environmental impacts that kind of outweigh what it's trying to do. Joshua, did you want to come back and just elaborate a bit on your question or, or say anything? Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. Um, I think our, our focus on corn has uh, um, well been uh, a lobby oriented, a lobbyist oriented move. Um, I'm talking more about algae. I'm talking about things like hemp, um, uh, that can be grown regenerative in a circular process, um, from my perspective. Um, but obviously we are not up to scale on these things, nor do we have the infrastructure to do it yet. Um, it probably should have been started 60 years ago, but that ship has kind of sailed. And now we find ourselves really beholden to entities that we do not have good relations with 
for our energy sovereignty, not just in the top three, but around the world. And then we have climate change breathing down our neck and we aren't uh, on track to not hit 1.5 degrees Celsius change by 2026. And then you have things like what you're talking about here, which from a global trade perspective are going to put the onus of really adhering to things on the global south. And they're not going to do it, um, in my opinion. So um, I just, you know, I'm uh, I have a very open view of what our potential is in regards to using biomass, but um, the oil and petroleum industry and uh, the vested interest in continuing to degenerate the planet are probably not on board with me. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree that I think that, yeah, the, you know, the incumbent industries are, are, are too well placed to kind of lobby uh, for, for those, you know, some of those alternatives that you mentioned to, you know, to be used um so you know I, equally i'm 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 kind of skeptical as to uh you know their their long term benefits i think or the you know the long term integration in the economy um i think that you know you need to get these up to you know some you know large scale size you know to be able to you know develop those economies of scale you know, to, to actually make an impact. Um, so, you know, we're no, as far as I understand, we're nowhere near that stage at the moment. Yeah, I, I think I would say um, just two, two things to that. One is that ExxonMobil has um, been making some progress on algae that can capture CO2 and turn it into some sort of fuel, some sort of biofuel. Okay. So I don't know like how advanced they are, and I know it's probably going to be decades away. But they're, you know, they're certainly one of the incumbents that's looking at this more seriously because they've taken a sort of corporate strategic decision not to go the kind of offshore wind routes and rather look to the fuels side of things. So they're, mm. they're focused more on, on that and, and like things like hydrogen with like blue hydrogen with, with, with CCS, carbon capture. Um, okay. Yeah. So, it, I mean, yeah. I, I, and I, but then, of course, ExxonMobil, you know, they have a history of, a uh, very well documented history of having, you know, tried to um, undermine climate science. So, you know, I think parts of the company might have been trying to do this, um, and might have, there might have been kind of internal conflicts with other parts of the company that wanted to preserve the status quo, which I, I think is probably what what Joshua is referring to in his question. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway. Thanks for joining us. Um, uh, just to remind you that um, yeah, if you if you enjoyed this podcast, then um, then I'd invite you to to check out both of our newsletters. Um, mine is uh, Energy Flux, which is over at www.energyflux.news, um, and it's very much focused on the global energy transition. Um, and I will post a link into the uh, the room here uh, or the recording to the article I've referred to about carbon border adjustment mechanisms. Um, so you can check that out. And um, Peter, where can where can we find you? Uh, yeah, the best place is um, you know, Carbon Risk. So that's carbonrisk.substack.com. Brilliant. Well, so, thanks yeah. uh, for your time, Peter. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, yeah, thanks, the best. sir. We'll thanks so with much. the book. Thank you very much. <laughs> bye bye.